Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast in which we look deeper into the stories shaping the world's most fascinating region. I'm Andrew People. Well, it's been a tough summer for many nations in Southeast Asia, thanks to a resurgence of COVID-19 across Malaysia, Thailand, Myanmar, Indonesia and elsewhere, mainly associated with the spread of the Delta variant of the coronavirus. Meanwhile, in China, the original source of the pandemic, the country seems to have kept the virus under control, even as questions mount over how sustainable its hardline approach may be. In this episode, we've brought together two experts to assess the current state of play in these key areas of Asia, as countries struggle to put the pandemic behind them. Our first guest is Yanjong Huang. Yanjong is a senior fellow for global health at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he's an expert on global health issues. Hello to you, Yanjong. Hi, Andrew. And we also have with us Peter Mumford. Peter is a political risk analyst, and he's now the practice head for Southeast and South Asia at Eurasia Group in Singapore. Hello to you too, Peter. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. And Peter, if I could start with you, can you give us a sense of which countries in the region are seeing the greatest rise in COVID-related fatalities and in COVID-related problems? Well, as you were noting, Andrew, just now, I mean, in recent months, Southeast Asia, most countries in the region have seen a real spike in cases and deaths. Although in the last couple of weeks or a few weeks in some cases, the situation is actually starting to improve a bit. Certainly, Malaysia still has the highest level of cases and deaths relative to population size, although it's you know testing a lot higher than other countries. But those numbers are starting to come down in terms of cases and deaths. So the trajectory is improving. And that's the same in other countries that have also had bad outbreaks, whether it's Thailand, the Philippines, Vietnam, even Indonesia and Myanmar, which had you know severe sort of crises a month or two ago, now looking much better. Although in those countries I just mentioned, of course, testing is much lower. So inevitably, when we're looking at sort of the risk, one of the key indicators, of course, is the positivity rate, the share of tests that are coming back with a positive result. And although, as I just said, the situation looks at the top level like it's improving, certainly in a couple of countries, particularly Thailand and Philippines, the positivity rate is still around 25%. So that's five times the sort of recommended threshold from the WHO. So that suggests that the risks are still quite significant in terms of unidentified spread of the virus. Also, while most countries are heading downwards in terms of deaths and cases, in terms of the confirmed numbers, there's one country that's notably going in a different direction, and that is Singapore, which has relaxed or relaxed and reinstated to some extent restrictions in recent weeks. So what were the factors behind that surge in COVID cases over the summer? I mean, the short answer and sort of the common theme across most of the countries is the Delta variant, at least in terms of the recent months. That was a sort of game changer across the region, I would say, you know, especially given low vaccination rates and low testing rates. And also, I mean, a lot of the countries have found it more difficult to keep sort of tough restrictions in place for long periods of time. So that's made it more difficult. Also, there are a lot of you know, country specific factors at play as well, of course, whether it's Malaysia, this sort of long extended wave that the country's been experiencing, some dated all the way back to the state elections late last year. Also in Indonesia, around Ramadan, just after Ramadan, the travel season then was a trigger for a rise in cases. Of course, in Myanmar, we had the military coup in February and the country's been in disarray. It's an understatement 
statement. Since then, you know, in Thailand, you had the New Year Festival in April, etc. So a lot of kind of country-specific events and factors that have led to a spike in cases. And of course, between the different countries, there's been a variance in how willing they are to implement tough restrictions and how quickly they did that. So, for example, in Thailand, the government has been accused of being too slow several months ago to respond to the rise in cases and too slow to bring in new measures, and therefore the situation got worse than it might otherwise have been. Yan Chong, can you then give us a sense of the latest picture in China? Have the authorities there, do you think, been able to suppress the Delta variant successfully? Well, we know that since the Wuhan outbreak last year, right, the government has managed to keep an extremely low infection level, right, and that it's still the case, you know, but essentially, right, within two months, you know, since July 20th, China had experienced three outbreaks. So first, there was this outbreak in Nanjing. Then when the situation began to be under control early September, it was immediately followed by another outbreak in Putian, Fujian province. I think now the situation is largely under control. You know, yesterday I think they reported two new cases, but again you have seen a new outbreak in Harbin, northeastern China. And yesterday I think they reported thirteen locally acquired cases in the city. You know, these numbers, you know, in the U.S. standards seems to be pretty low, actually extremely low. But under China's zero tolerance strategy, even one single locally acquired case is not acceptable. So the government continued to use the same playbook to combat those local sporadic outbreaks essentially a by-all-means, at-all-cost approach, but it's clear these outbreaks are becoming more frequent and the government is encountering diminishing returns problems when dealing with Delta variant. So we're going to expect that this cat-and-mouse game continue in the months to come. Can I explore those diminishing returns a bit more? How long do you think China can carry on with this sort of zero tolerance approach to COVID? Obviously, in many Western countries now, there's a sort of sense that we have to learn to live with COVID and it's going to be there, but it's something that we can control, but we have to get on with daily life and growing the economy again and so on. China, though, continues with this hard line. It's still very difficult to get into China, for example. How long can that really carry on without some sort of economic cost to China and without that trade-off going too far the wrong way? Well, the diminishing returns problem increasingly clear. Right In August, the Statistics Bureau reported the economy has been slowing down. You know, the service sector has been in the contracting zone, and there's also growing dissatisfaction with the government approach in handling the virus, especially in those regions, cities that's imposed the lockdown measures. A lot of inconvenience caused to the residents in the cities. But the problem here is that, as one government official pointed out, 
as long as the dividends associated with that policy, well, that it's going to be continued. I think the way he talked about the dividends, all those epidemiological, political, economic, and foreign policy benefits, you know, and for one thing, the steel weighing the countries in the West and now in Southeast Asia now are relaxing this containment approach and trying to live with the virus. China seems to be swimming against the tide. And if they can prove you know, they can continue to keep the infection level low, it could still claim you know, that our political system is superior to others. We still have the capacity to effectively mobilize all the resources and capacities to contain the spread of the virus. So, you know, eventually, I think the decision is more about politics than about public health. That's interesting. It's a continuing source of pride to China that it's kept the virus at such low levels. Peter, what about in Southeast Asia then? You talked about Singapore and the change in attitude there. Is that something that's spreading across the region, a sense that we have to learn to live with the virus more? Or is it just specific to Singapore at the moment? I think Singapore is ahead of the other countries in the region in terms of talking about or actually trying to move towards living with the virus. But other countries are now sort of somewhat behind the curve and starting to come up with that sort of rhetoric as well. I mean, I think it's fair to say that most of the sort of countries in Southeast Asia are somewhere on a spectrum between what Yan Zhong was just describing about the China approach and perhaps what we see in the US and the UK and Europe more broadly. And so countries are moving away a bit from zero tolerance. But it gets quite difficult. And I think this relates to what Yan Zhong was saying as well. Once a country has maintained a very low caseload throughout the pandemic, public expectations are built in. And therefore, politically, you sort of painted yourself into a corner that's quite hard to get out of. So perversely, in some ways, some of the countries have seen a spike and surge in cases in the last few weeks or months in Southeast Asia. Public expectations have shifted now and people are a bit more used to higher caseloads, seeing reports of deaths and therefore no longer expect a sort of zero score, if you like, each day. And therefore are starting to get a bit more willing to consider relaxation of restrictions. But I still think most governments view downside political risks for them in lifting all restrictions and then seeing a massive spike in cases and deaths. And they see the political risks there being greater than maintaining some sort of modest level of restrictions, even if that has some sort of drag on the economic recovery. I guess another factor here, of course, is that Singapore is a essentially a city-state, a relatively small geographic area compared to a country like Indonesia, which is thousands of islands spread over thousands of miles. So you're talking about quite different countries. I mean, in, in an overall sense, how much sense does it make to talk about Southeast Asia as a block in terms of a regional approach to COVID? Or is there just too much variation within the region to talk sensibly in that way? I mean, I'd add another key difference, of course, is that Singapore is very highly vaccinated. You know, over 80% of the population fully vaccinated. The other countries are further behind. So, of course, that's a key determinant how quickly they can move forward toward living with the virus. But yes, in terms of Southeast Asia as a block, I mean, the countries are extremely different in terms of politics and economics and pretty much every factor you can imagine. Well, there is some sort of commonality in some of the challenges they're facing grappling with COVID in terms of you know, vaccination rollout. 
how they approach restrictions and balance economics and public health. But definitely some of the countries such as Indonesia, Philippines, you know, large archipelagos have unique geographic challenges that the other countries don't have. Whereas the countries in the mainland, in the Mekong sub-region, they have a different kind of problem to deal with, which is much greater risks of sort of cross-border transmission. On that point about cross-border transmission, Yan Zhong, with your global health sort of hat on, how much concern is there about transmission across borders? I know there's been some concern, for example, that Myanmar, given the poor state of its politics at the moment and the high number of cases that are spreading through that country, that it could become some sort of regional hub for COVID and could even spread into places like China with which it has a border. How much of a concern is that, that countries like Myanmar, where the virus is potentially getting out of control again, could be problematic for the region more generally? Well, we know that this cross-information has been a problem from the very beginning, right? The first overseas cases from China were observed in Southeast Asia, in this case, Thailand. And in fact, it was precisely this reporting of the first case in Thailand that alerted the Chinese government that prompt them you know, to have a national teleconference warning the local government officials about a looming pandemic. But now China is also concerned about imported cases from Southeast Asia, particularly Myanmar, right? This city that is bordering with Myanmar, you know, really in Yun, uh, southwestern Yunnan province, I believe they have experienced five lockdowns already since last year. The most recent one, I'm not even sure they have entirely lifted their lockdown measures. Uh, local government officials, you know, basically complain that despite all these stringent border control measures, cases continue to be imported from the other side. You know, to them, this is becoming more like a Sisyphus task. So that highlighted the importance of international collaboration and cooperation. You know, I would encourage the Chinese government actually to provide more vaccines to Myanmar if they are really serious about cutting you know, this uh, transmission chain. Well, let's talk a bit more about vaccines in detail. You've both mentioned them already. Yan Chong, can you give us a quick rundown then of where we are with the rollout of vaccinations against COVID across China at the moment? Well, China has been very impressive in terms of their mass vaccine rollout. They have a sluggish beginning you know, earlier this year, beginning May 2021. They have accelerated their efforts by September 18th, they have administered nearly 2.2 billion doses. That means they have achieved more than 70% vaccination rate. You know, only a very small number of countries have achieved that level of vaccination. So that is quite impressive. The problem here is that with this zero-tolerance approach, even one single case is not considered acceptable. But even with higher vaccination rate, as high as 70%, you cannot eradicate the virus. In fact, some of the Chinese public health officials say 
by the end of this year, they're going to achieve 80% vaccination rate, and therefore they're able to build what they call herd immunity. But even when they achieved the herd immunity, still, right, they cannot eradicate the virus. So, you know, that zero tolerance approach essentially makes the higher vaccination rate almost like irrelevant. So I think if they want to make their vaccine rate really relevant, then you need to change the zero tolerance strategy. It needs to be balanced with some sort of leeway on getting things back to normal in China. That's interesting. Peter, how about Southeast Asia? Once again, of course, big region, lots of different countries. But can you give us a sense of how the vaccine rollout effort is going across the region? And what some of the impediments to getting the vaccine to a sufficient number of people have been so far? So here in Singapore, the city state is already fully vaccinated over 80% of the population or around 80% of the population. It's one of the highest levels in the world. And that has, as we were just talking about, encouraged this shift to living with the virus. Although, you know, that's a nuanced shift. So there's still restrictions in place, such as mask wearing much everywhere. Restaurants still have limits on dining capacity. Restaurants can't play music in case people talk too loudly. And travel restrictions for most countries remain in place. And one of the reasons for that is that there's still a chunk of the population in Singapore, particularly amongst the elderly groups who are unvaccinated and hesitant to get the vaccine. I think this is a sort of public policy conundrum for the government at the moment. Elsewhere in the region, the rates vary significantly all the way down to the bottom. Myanmar, which is about 6 or 7% fully vaccinated, although the vaccination rate is starting to pick up. As Yan Zhong was just talking about, China should be supplying more to Myanmar to help given the risk across the border. And indeed, it has been both kind of formally with the military in Myanmar, but also somewhat informally, China has been supplying, or at least reportedly has been supplying vaccines to ethnic armed groups in some of the border regions along the other side of Yunnan province, where those ethnic armed groups are controlling those regions and are better able to disperse the vaccines. So Myanmar's at the bottom end of the spectrum. The standout star, really, in terms of vaccinations relative to expectations in Southeast Asia uh, is Cambodia, which is one of the least developed countries in the region. Admittedly, it's a relatively small population, a relatively small geographical area. But still, it's somewhat surprising. It's already fully vaccinated over 60% of its population, more than most countries in the region. And that's thanks to a lot of support from China in terms of supplies and and logistics. I wanted to get the perspective of both of you then on the issue of vaccine diplomacy. I think when the vaccines first started to come out in China and then also in countries like the US and the UK, there was a lot of talk about how countries might use vaccines to further their diplomatic cause as a sort of means of soft power in the Asia region. How has that worked out in practice to date? Has the provision of vaccines from countries, whether it's China, whether it's Western countries, really had an effect on the sort of geopolitics of the region? We know that Southeast Asia is a regional priority of Chinese vaccine diplomacy. 40% of the Chinese vaccines sent overseas go to Southeast Asia. In some countries, 
reliance on Chinese vaccines is extremely high, right? We talk about Cambodia, Peter just mentioned, 60% vaccination rate thanks to the Chinese provision of the vaccines. Indonesia, we know that more than 80% of vaccines are actually from China. By shipping vaccines overseas, China hopes to improve its international image, to project soft power, to cement economic and geopolitical ties to the recipient countries. But thus far, we don't have any solid evidence supporting that China has achieved success in terms of fulfilling those objectives. The international image appears to be improving, although that seems to be still mixed. In fact, there's the survey conducted by the Institute of Southeast Asia studies in Singapore earlier this year suggested that the gains of soft power are there, but not very impressive. The survey suggested that the percentage of the respondents who agree, you know, China is the most important strategic power in the region actually dropped. And some of the countries who receive the Chinese vaccines, I think the Chinese government might be expecting they would soften their stand on, you know, the territorial disputes in South China Sea, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, I think in a lot of media reports, vaccine diplomacy tends to get overstated. I mean, we took the view early in the pandemic that vaccine diplomacy would not be a geopolitical game changer in ASEAN. I think that's proven to be the case. I mean, certainly vaccine support in places like Cambodia, Laos and Myanmar, as we were just talking about, is very significant. But they're all countries that were very firmly in Beijing's orbit already. And there's other more significant factors at play in terms of China's influence changing in recent months there, whether it's the coup in Myanmar or debt concerns in Laos, for example. And the other key country that's been using Chinese vaccines, as Yan Zhong was saying, is Indonesia, which has overwhelmingly relied on Sinovac for most of its sort of vaccination programs so far. But there's various reasons for that in terms of thinking it was a more suitable vaccine, given the archipelago and geography for distributing around. But given concerns about the efficacy of Sinovac against Delta variant, certainly Indonesia, along with other countries in the region, have been looking to diversify supplies. And certainly other countries in Southeast Asia, other than the ones we've just mentioned, the share of overall vaccines in terms of the pipeline that are coming from China is actually quite low, perhaps lower than may have been expected. Also, you've got other countries that are playing the vaccine diplomacy game as well. You know, the US in particular in recent weeks and months has been ramping up its vaccine diplomacy. But I would argue that that's also not a game changer. India, of course, is now resuming exports and will be getting back in the vaccine diplomacy game as well. I think sometimes it's very sort of tempting to attribute any sort of geopolitical change in Southeast Asia over the last year to vaccine diplomacy. And it's easy to do. But in most cases, I think it's hard to ascertain. For example, if you look at the Philippines, the recent sort of renewal of the key security pact between the US and the Philippines, which was finalized during Defense Secretary Austin's visit to the Philippines. Some people were attributing that to, well, this is you know, the reward or result of US vaccine diplomacy because they've sent a lot of vaccines to Philippines recently through COVAX. 
in reality, the renewal of the U.S.-Philippine Defense Pact was due to basically, or rather, it was an own goal by China, because China has essentially, on the one hand, given test kit diplomacy, vaccine diplomacy. On the other hand, it was massively ramping up its incursions in the South China Sea, the presence of its maritime militia, and that sort of backfired and undermined the benefits for Beijing. So essentially, Philippines has shifted a bit away from China back towards the US this year. But that's not a result of vaccine diplomacy. That's really a result of China's activities in the South China Sea. Moving on from that, could I ask then in terms of the impact on the economies in the region? We've seen analysts in recent weeks lowering their expectations for GDP for countries across the Southeast Asia region, thanks to this upturn in COVID. What's your estimate of the likely impact? And do you see countries having the capacity to respond either with big fiscal or central bank measures that might reverse any downturn in in economies? Well, certainly the Delta variant surge, second, third wave, depending on the country in recent months, has led to downgrades across the board in terms of GDP growth forecasts. Most countries have seen one to two, if not three percentage points for their 2021 GDP growth forecasts knocked off. I mean, of course, the country most affected still is Thailand, even though it had a significant economic contraction last year. You would think that statistical base effects may help it this year, but even this year, it's only expected to grow by less than 1% and is at risk of being close to zero. And that, of course, is because Thailand is a very heavily tourism-dependent economy. It's about 12% of GDP in terms of the direct impact before the pandemic. So in 2019, Thailand received 40 million tourists. You know, this year, they're talking about maybe 200,000. And so it's an enormous change. And certainly... If we think about the economic outlook for Thailand, or indeed we think about currency dynamics for the baht, think about the current account surplus, what Yan Zhong was talking about on China and China's continuing restrictions is absolutely critical. Because until China and other Southeast Asian and other East Asian countries lift their restrictions on cross-border travel, it's going to be very hard for the Thai tourism sector to resume because most tourists to Thailand around 60% come from elsewhere in Asia rather than Europe or the US. So it's going to be very hard, even if Thailand, like it is doing now, gradually opens up these sort of islands to tourism through sandbox schemes and talks about opening up the rest of the economy in the coming months. There's still going to be that sort of supply problem, if you like, with tourism. Elsewhere in the region, it's slightly better than Thailand. I mean, most of the countries are sort of 3 4 5% growth, but that's less than they would have hoped after a very difficult year last year. In terms of sort of the stimulus that's left, the opportunities for that are pretty limited. And that's one of the challenges in maintaining tough restrictions. I mean, most of the countries have pretty much used all their fiscal firepower already and have large fiscal deficits. And indeed, most countries now are thinking about what can new measures can they introduce to raise taxes to try and rebuild kind of government finances. Some countries still have a little bit of space to maneuver. On the monetary side, although, of course, with global commodity prices higher, food prices higher, there are inflationary concerns that also constrain how much they can do on that front as well. And we've seen COVID causing disruption to global supply chains. Obviously, in China itself, we've seen major ports shutting down some terminals, even when they've had just one or two cases of COVID. Is there a concern in the region that a sort of longer term impact of the pandemic could be 
that supply chains start to move away from the region as countries elsewhere that are on the end of those supply chains look to build more resilience into the global trading system? It's certainly a concern, and some are arguing that. I mean, I think this is particularly pertinent in the case of Vietnam, which has seen significant supply chain disruption because it's obviously such a massive exporter and has had very harsh lockdown restrictions. So Vietnam is also having sort of adopted a slightly softer approach earlier this year, reverted back to its instinctive zero COVID approach, a bit like China, and had very draconian lockdowns, even deploying the military to keep people in their home in Ho Chi Minh City. And the Vietnamese authorities essentially sort of required companies to have bubbles for their workers. And unless companies were able to house 24-7 all their workers on site, essentially factories had to close, particularly in the South, particularly for companies that don't have the resources or the size of facilities to accommodate all the workers. So we've certainly seen this impact greatest in the garment, clothing, footwear sectors, less so in the tech sectors. So that has led to questions about, are companies going to pull out of Vietnam and move elsewhere in the region or beyond? My view is that despite companies' frustration, I think, with a lot of these measures, ultimately the factors that are keeping sort of investors interested in Vietnam or elsewhere in the region will remain the case. And while some companies may move, I think most will still see that Southeast Asia is particularly attractive. Vietnam, of course, is going to remain very attractive for its political stability, pro-trade, pro-FDI approach, and the fact that it's one of the chosen countries for a so-called China plus one supply chain strategy, given it borders China, But I think what we will start to see perhaps is some companies that are sourcing from countries in the region, and this is maybe a global phenomenon, look at how they diversify supply chains to manage risks. So maybe they'll still keep sourcing from Vietnam or other countries, but try to balance that with newer options elsewhere in the world as sort of backup options. So they're no longer overly relying on one particular country. Yan Zhong, turning back to you and China. Obviously, COVID originated, as we know, in China. There was that initial period where there seemed to be some criticism of how Beijing was handling the pandemic, even within the country itself. That seemed to give way over the rest of the year to a certain sort of pride in the way that China handled the pandemic, certainly relative to other developed countries, particularly the US, but other European countries as well. Where do you think we are now? How is China reckoning with what has happened over the last year or two in terms of the pandemic, both in terms of thinking about how to prevent future pandemics and in terms of an overall assessment of how well the government has handled what's happened? Well, you talk about China as a reaching point of the pandemic. Probably most of the people in China now would disagree with that assessment. While in the beginning, I think until the end of February 2020, China seems not to be challenging that assessment that the pandemic started in China. This official narrative sort of changed after that. They started to dispute the claim, you know, that this virus started in China, according to one of the leading public health experts, you know, simply because the virus was first detected in Wuhan doesn't necessarily mean that China is the origin point. We have seen, in fact, 
this growing argument basically claim you know that the other countries especially the united states as the possible origin of the pandemic and as a result we have seen those initial discussions sort of lessons learned sort of eliminate even though you know there still talks about how to fix the loopholes in the public health system but that part of the local government's initial mishandling of the pandemic essentially eliminate in order to make that official narrative on China's effective pandemic response more coherent and more convincing and in the future i think china is certainly trying to do all it can to prepare for the next outbreak the politburo just convened a study session focusing on the issue of biosecurity but i think now with this political tensions in china and the west we haven't seen any serious dialogue or conversation you know how this china the who and other countries work together preparing for the next pandemic the who certainly prepared and proposed in the second phase a plan for investigating the origin of the pandemic but it has been rejected by the chinese side so are you pretty pessimistic about future pandemics because of course i guess new variants we've already had the delta variant it's not beyond the realms of possibility that we could have new variants potentially arising particularly in in the asia region right yeah that is the concern you could talk about the cooperation and you know, collaboration between non-governmental actors scientists public health experts involved in this track 2 talks but for effective international cooperation you need involvement of the government actors and unfortunately the political tensions continued to be the biggest obstacle for effective international cooperation in fact this is a concern even some of the chinese scholars pointed out we have seen the emergence of two sort of diametrically opposed sets of beliefs value systems and narratives that i think are making this difficult to build this confidence in the trust you know that is so essential for international cooperation or collaboration well thank you yan jong that's a a bit of a downbeat note to end on but a very realistic view of where we are thank you to you peter as well for all of those insights on what's happening in southeast asia absolutely invaluable to hear your thoughts on that so thank you to both of our guests today thank you to rebecca bailey for producing this episode and thank you to alexander lestrange once again for our theme music We'd love to hear from you. There are several ways to get in touch. We're on Twitter at Asia Matters Pod. We have a email account, of course, Asia Matters Pod at gmail dot com. We also have a website that has more information about all of the episodes that we do. That's Asia Matters Pod dot com. We have plenty of plans for future episodes, so do please keep listening. And thank you for listening today. And I hope you'll join us again. 